Thanks, Darcy. Good morning to all of you here today. You're joining us here in the worship center or in the venue or online. Last Sunday morning, we began a worship uh, a sermon series in the book of First John, and we are encouraging you, if you so desire, to read through the book of First John at least once a week during this, this series. And the idea is that the thoughts, the words, the phrases, the logic of First John would really become second nature to us, as opposed to having kind of a superficial understanding of this book. We want to let it dwell richly within us. And last week, we focused on John's purpose statement for this letter. It's found in 1 John 5, 13. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so John says, I want you as believers to have assurance of eternal life. And if you have this assurance, and I know many of you do, uh, you would agree that it gives you a great freedom in your walk with God. It gives you this, this humble confidence in your walk with God. And if you believe in Jesus, but you lack this assurance, I think you'd also say that it makes you rather tentative in your walk with God and sometimes even fearful in your walk with God. And so it's significant that John writes, he says, I want you to know if you believe that you have eternal life. And so as we read through this letter, we should be asking God, God, would you give me this assurance? Would you confirm for me that my faith in Jesus gives me eternal life based on the death and resurrection? And so today's passage is very relevant to John's purpose. The uh, passage that was just read, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4, John discusses the message that he had proclaimed about eternal life. And so very simply, we're going to look at two things in this passage. We're going to look at the credibility of the message. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to look at the, the fruit or what this, this message produces. So we'll look at the, the credibility and then the fruit of this message. First of all, the credibility in verses 1 and 2. It's really interesting. John gives us two specific reasons why this message about Jesus is credible and therefore why we should believe it, put our full confidence in this message. Again, in verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And so there John refers to Jesus as that which was from the beginning, from the beginning. If you read through the book of 1 John, you may have noticed that over and over John talks about in the beginning. And four of those times, uh, he, he mentions it eight times in the, in the book, and four of those times he's talking about the message that you have heard from the beginning. And uh, in the, the Bible in general, and, and definitely in, the, in 1 John, uh, if something was found from the beginning, if it's old, if it's ancient, it has authority, it has credibility. It says if something is new, if it's novel, if it's some, something that came on the scene recently, it's suspect. Actually, we have, a, we have a word for new and creative teachings. We call that heresy, okay? What is, what is from the beginning is orthodox. And so that's what John is taking them back to over and over again. Here he refers to Jesus, the word of life, as that which was from the beginning. And so John is not only describing that the Jesus they had heard about from the beginning of the, their journey with Christ, Jesus was from the beginning in the sense that he had always existed. Before he became one of us, uh, Jesus 
was with God the Father. And John stated it this way in his gospel. You know, there are these four biographies in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John's biography, in his gospel, he begins it with these words. And this should sound familiar. John wrote, John 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Uh, he was in the beginning with God the Father. And Jesus is called the Word here in John 1. And in John 1, 1, he was called the Word of Life. Why would a person be called the Word? Well, what, what is a word? Well, a word is one of the, our words are one of the main ways that we express ourselves, that we disclose ourselves to one another. Jesus said that the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And so if you never speak, uh, people around you really don't have a great idea of who you are and what fills your heart. Uh, they might guess, you can guess occasionally from someone's appearance, but people won't really know whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're kind or harsh, whether you're loving or self-serving. People, people don't really know. But if you speak, I mean, people will know. Very quickly, they will know what is true about you. And Jesus is called the Word of God because he is the ultimate self-expression of God. Nobody's ever seen God the Father. He, he, is, he can't be seen with the human eye. And so Jesus is the Word of God. He fully, accurately uh, expresses God. And so if you listen to and watch Jesus, you will have a great idea of what God is like. That's why these gospels, the, these biographies are so valuable to us. Look at John 11 sometime. Uh, Jesus' good friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus went to the tomb, and he saw everybody else around the tomb weeping. And so in John eleven thirty five, 35, it's often called the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And so you want to know what God is like when you're going through pain, when you've experienced loss and heartache? You want to know, you want to know what God is doing when you are weeping? Well, look at Jesus. He weeps with those who weep. He is the word of God. He's also called the word of life in 1 John 1, 1 because he's the ultimate expression of the eternal life that is found only in God. Jesus is the eternal, he was, he was eternal life in a flesh and blood body. Eternal life in a flesh and blood body. Notice in verse 2 how it reinforces that Jesus is the embodiment of eternal life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so this message about Jesus has credibility because Jesus was with the Father from eternity past. Again, you can't get more credibility because you can't get more ancient than Jesus. And so then he became one of us to reveal the type of life that the Father offers to anybody who wants it. He offers eternal life. And so if you read John's gospel, you'll hear Jesus saying things like, I am the bread of life. And what he's saying is, I will satisfy your deepest hunger. 
Jesus said, I am the living water. In other words, if you believe in me, your deepest thirst will be satisfied. And so the first reason that John's message about Jesus had credibility is because he is the word of life that was in the beginning before he became one of us. The second reason John's message about Jesus had credibility is because it's based on firsthand experience. Notice again how John expresses himself in verse 1. Notice how sensual, how tactile this is. Uh, It's really striking. That which was from the beginning, okay, got it, which we have heard, okay, his ears were involved, uh, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Uh, John wanted them to know Jesus is not just an idea. He's not just a concept. Uh, Most religions, most philosophies are just ideas. Okay, you have to wrap your mind around this idea. This message that John preached was a person. And so he says their ears had heard him speak. They had heard him teach. They had, had heard him pray. He says, we, we saw him with our eyes. They had seen him hold a child. They saw him uh, walk on water. They saw him crucified. They saw the, the scars in his hands and his side and his, his feet after the resurrection. Their hands had touched his flesh and blood body. In verse 2, John mentions twice that this life, this eternal life, was made manifest. Uh, but it was basically saying he appeared. He was visible. So you want to know what eternal life is? He was visible in the person of Jesus. He says the life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and it was made manifest to us. And so again, Jesus was the visible embodiment of God the Father. He was Yahweh in the flesh. And he was also the visible embodiment of eternal life, the life that the Father was offering. And over and over, Jesus said it. He told Philip, for example, before the the night before he was crucified, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't you believe it? Philip said, show us the Father. He said, no, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. So why was it so important that Jesus had come with a flesh and blood body? Well, the short answer is that if he didn't take on flesh and blood, his death on the cross would not have been an acceptable substitute for sinful flesh and blood humans. If Jesus were not fully human, he wouldn't be a sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice substitute for humans because humans are embodied creatures. Very unnatural when a person dies and their spirit is separated from their bodies. And so um, that's why he had to come in flesh and blood body. Why is it important to know know that John and the other original disciples confirmed his full humanity with their eyes and their ears and their hands? Well, the short answer is that it's really hard to dismiss such firsthand accounts. You know, people can say anything. People can claim anything. But it's hard to dismiss an account like this. I, I really wanted to title this this sermon, uh, Baker Mayfield Saw a UFO. Did you hear about that? So he's a quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. 
But he, he and his wife claim they saw a UFO. People claim they've seen aliens. And if I had to sit down with one of these people, I'd say, well, did you see them? Did you hear them? Did you touch them? And were there a lot of us, like 500 people in the room, like happened in the reservoir? If, if so, then I might pay attention. Well, John says, yeah, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. There were many in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And Jesus was well aware that this firsthand, this firsthand uh, account, firsthand experience was significant. In John 20, it was after the resurrection. You may remember, if you've read it, that when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the very first Easter, Thomas was not there. And uh, in John 20, verse 25, here's Thomas's reaction when the other disciples told him. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He said, we've seen him resurrected. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the, marks, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And as been pointed out, Thomas was a good skeptic. He wasn't one of these people that said, I'm not going to believe uh, no matter what you tell me. He said, no, I'm willing to believe, but I need to see the evidence. And so uh, eight days later, Jesus appeared to the disciples again, and Thomas was there. And here's what happened. Jesus said to Thomas, this is John 20, 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus wasn't the least bit, least bit offended that Thomas demanded evidence tactile evidence. He wanted to see, he wanted to touch and make sure this wasn't uh, an illusion or some mirage. And this is one of the main reasons why we believe the writings of the New Testament. They were written by people who have firsthand accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Or they were written by people who are close to people who did. And so here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world talking about the message of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why we proclaim that this message is credible because of this firsthand evidence. And so if you are already a believer in Jesus, we, we trust that this, this series in 1 John, that this word will deepen your faith and you will cling more t even more tightly to the gospel and your confidence and your, your assurance of salvation will grow and deepen. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, uh, we, we hope that this, this series, this word from God, will give you the evidence that you need to believe. It's an, it's an offer. God makes it to everyone. Believe the gospel and you will be saved. And so we trust that this, this time in, in 1 John will be foundational for you, that you will actually experience eternal life. And so he's talked about the credibility of the message. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about the fruit of the message about Jesus. In these verses, John explains that he explains a couple of specific things that the gospel does. And these were things that he wanted. These were things that he he loved about the gospel. This is why he was committed to proclaiming the gospel. The first thing he mentions is fellowship, and we'll talk about this more next week in verses 5 through 10. 
In verse 3, John says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. When you have fellowship with someone, you have this, this depth of relationship because of some commonality, something you have in common with that person or persons. And we experience this on many different levels in many different contexts. Uh, chances are you have fellowship, commonality in your family. Uh, if you have a healthy workplace, you have uh, fellowship in your workplace. We have this in clubs and organizations. We have shared experiences, good or bad. We have this commonality with people. If you've experienced something tragic, you've experienced some loss that someone else has, when you meet that person, you get to know them. There's this, this bond. There's this fellowship. There's this commonality. And John tells his readers, I'm explaining this message about Jesus to you so that you will have fellowship with us. And John's talking about himself and the other eyewitnesses. And it seems like kind of a strange thing to say. I'm, I'm proclaiming this message so you can have fellowship with us. And it's not in any prideful way. He's, he, remember, he's talking about this message about Jesus that if people believe, they will be born from above and they will have eternal life. What John wants is for these people to have this commonality of eternal life with, with him, that they would have that in common. We learn in chapter 2 that there were some who had separated from the believing community and they're trying to, to lure people away from Jesus and away from the gospel. And so what he's saying is, I don't want you to leave us and, have, and, and we don't want you to have fellowship with them. We want you to keep this commonality you have with us because of Christ and because of the gospel. And significantly adds, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So he's reminding them that the gospel not only creates fellowship among believers, it creates fellowship among believers and the triune God. He mentions the Father and the Son, but of course also with the Holy Spirit. And so this is the deepest, most enduring fellowship that you can have, period. And this eternal fellowship, it's the basis for much of what John writes in 1 John. All these commands, these, these kind of fierce commands you read in 1 John to love your brother and what's true of you if you don't love other Christians, they all flow from this. They flow from the, the fact that, that the gospel binds us together eternally in a relationship with each other and with God. Therefore, our love for one another should have no limits. Our love should be proportional to our fellowship, to the bond that exists. And in 1 John 3, 16, John says, basically, Jesus defined what love is. He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. If we're to imitate him, if we're to walk as he walked, then we have to lay down our lives for one another. And so you know when you have genuine fellowship, when you find people that you're laying down your life for, people that are laying down their life for you. And you know what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about these are people you would do anything, anything humanly possible. You give time, you give energy, you give money, you give resources, whatever the need, I'm there for you. You're family to me. We have this bond, this, this eternal bond. 
And of course, you can't have that depth of fellowship and that depth of love with, with uh, everyone uh, else in the church or in the body of Christ, but we can and we should have that with some people. And actually, if you don't have that fellowship with anybody, if there's nobody you're, you're laying down your life for, again, I would say outside your immediate family, uh, you're actually in a pretty dangerous place spiritually. Uh, you, I, we all need other people that know us. I mean, really know us. They know our temptations. They know our weaknesses. They know what types of situations tend to trigger us and make us want to flee from Christ and run off to a far country. They also know our joys. They know that they know our our gifting and and the uh, you know the virtuous things about us. But we need people where you 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 tell them you have the green light. If you see anything in my life that's out of place, you see anything in my life that's concerning, you have the green light to talk to me about it. That's the type of fellowship every single believer should have. Here at Faith, sometimes those relationships are formed through life groups. We hope it happens. Many times it does happen. But a lot of times it happens in random ways. And so I would encourage you to be open to that. Just keep your, keep your eyes open. Keep, keep your prayers up. God, show me where I, I can find this fellowship. I remember about eight years ago, there was a, a guy, college student. He came and he sat on the back row right, right back there by the sound booth. And uh, uh, he was actually interested in a girl who came to faith. And she had told him in no uncertain terms, like, buddy, you have no chance with me unless you, quote, unquote, love Jesus. And so he took this risk. He came to church. There are worse reasons to come to church. There, are, there actually aren't any, there aren't many bad reasons to come to church. But he took the risk and he came. And the very first Sunday he came, he sat by a man who, uh, who introduced himself and befriended him. To make a long story short, some of you know this, this story very well. Uh, that man gave him a job and mentored him for, what, like two or three years, shared Christ with him, taught him how to walk with God, and uh, he and the girl did get married. We can't promise you anything if that's why you're here today, <laughs> but occasionally it works out that way. But uh, who would have thought, who would have guessed that, that that would happen that way? And I'll tell you that story just to say, God does these things. This type of fellowship we're talking about is a gift. Keep your eyes open, your ears open. Pray, ask, notice, and recognize it when it shows up. Fellowship's one of the fruits of, uh, of the gospel. The second fruit that John mentions is joy, and it's striking how John says it in verse 4. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. You might have expected him to say, we're writing these things so your joy will be made complete. And some manuscripts changed it because that sounded better. But this, the, the earliest manuscripts, the best ones say, so that our joy may be made complete. What is joy? My working definition of joy is that joy is a deep satisfaction in God and his ways. It's a deep satisfaction between God and his ways. And so if you have joy, you are deeply satisfied in who God is and what God does. And so it means that joy is not limited to you and yours, what you experience and what, what, what people very close to you. If you have that perspective on joy, you can find joy all around you in, in the lives of many other people. And so when others experience God and do what pleases him, you'll be satisfied. And so there's nothing at all selfish about wanting more joy. 
And so John is simply expressing how satisfying it would be if his readers believe the message about Jesus and walk in truth along with them. John made similar statements in 2 John and in 3 John. In 3 John 4, he said, I have no greater joy than this than to see my children walking in truth. Can you imagine having such a deep, substantive fellowship with other people so that their walk with Jesus prompts, stimulates joy in you? Can you imagine that? Some of you can because you have that. You find great joy when others are walking in truth. This type of joy is the byproduct of loving one another deeply. In this sense, love and joy, this type of joy anyway, rise and fall together. If you don't love anybody deeply, you will never experience the type of joy that John is talking about. You can hear other people talk about it, other people experience. But if you don't take the risk and love people deeply, if you don't, if you don't lay down your life for anybody else, You'll never experience this joy. Of course, if you do, you're opening yourself up to disappointment, heartache, pain. Uh, relationships don't always work out. You're taking a risk, but it's a risk that's worth it because there's the potential for this type of joy. Brenda and I have some very dear friends uh, right now who are going through a tough time. Uh, they're experiencing all sorts of disappointment and loss, and certain aspects of their future are very much uncertain. We're praying for them, we're walking with them, we're encouraging them. I can assure you they're not shaking their fist at God. Uh, they are not abandoning God. They're not saying, God, do what we want here or else. And they're clinging to God. They're trusting God. They're persevering. And I could tell you, it, it brings Brenda and me great joy, great satisfaction to see their faith and their perseverance. That should not be the rare exception in the body of Christ. All of us should be experiencing that deep type of joy. And so the gospel, the message about Jesus, it's credible. It's based on eyewitness testimony. It's ancient. It goes back to the beginning. And it produces this type of fellowship. It produces this type of joy because it produces this type of love in the body of Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would experience this. God, you tell us this because you want us to experience it. And so, God, we invite you, as we study your word, deepen our faith, deepen our confidence in the gospel. We pray that our love would grow. We pray that our fellowship would grow. We pray that our joy would grow. And, God, we can't force this. We can't muscle it. We can't make this happen. And so we plead with you. Would you, by your spirit, produce this in our lives and in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen.